All right. Um, let's continue with what we've been uh, focusing on over the past couple of weeks. Um, we've been asking some ultimate questions about life, about the existence of God, about the truthfulness of Christianity. And um, I have been actually using some magic tricks, not just as frivolous fun, but as illustrations to uh, hopefully illustrate some of the points that are being made. And um, I want to start off with one for you. In fact, some of the most perplexing magic tricks that uh, have been done are prediction tricks. A trick where a magician makes a prediction, a free choice is then given, and then the prediction reveals that it was known all along. So do you want to see one? We could skip it. You want to see one? Okay, we'll do one, all right. Um, I have a, a deck of cards. Now, whenever a magician pulls out a deck of cards, people usually go, oh, it's a trick deck. Well, um, this is not arranged in any order. They're, they're actually all different cards, okay? And we're going to shuffle it up a bit. And um, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put a rubber band around this deck, around the end here. And we'll put another rubber band, just in case that one breaks. That's happened before. Okay. And I'm going to toss this out to the multitudes here. And if you catch the deck, what I want you to do is hold it face up with the rubber band out. And I want you just to, to lift up some cards and take a look at the first card you see. So, like four diamonds. Okay. Or jack of clubs. Okay. So, um, I'm just going to, I'm going to toss this out here. Um, here, I'll, I'll toss it over my shoulder. You better catch it. Okay. Here we go. All right, Matt, stand up. Just take a quick look at, you got it? All right, now, toss the cards to somebody over here. Nice, Scott. Right. Stand up. Stand up. Matt, stay standing. And just take a, you got one? Okay, toss it to somebody over here. RJ, stand up. You know the different cards? No? Help him out there, can he? All right. You got one? Okay, now, um, pass the cards up here to my lovely wife. She's not going to help me, are you? No, okay. Now, stay standing. Stay, stay standing. You guys got your cards? Okay. Now, don't say a word, but beforehand, I picked three cards. The seven of spades, the ten of diamonds, and the queen of hearts. RJ, if I got your cards, sit down. Scott, if I got your cards, sit down. Matt, if I got your cards, sit down. How did you do? Very well, thank you. Yes. That's, uh. <laughs> now, um, that's a, uh, a prediction trick. It's pretty amazing, actually, but it's just a trick. Okay? If I told you how it was done, you would go, oh, that is so easy. Okay? I'm not going to tell you how it's done. Right? <laughs> but the reason I, I am doing these tricks is to show you um, 
that there's a whole world of deception out there that I'm pretty practiced in, okay? That's, <laughs> it's good to know your pastor knows how to cheat and fool people, right? Um, but that actually makes me able to sort out a trick from a miracle, all right? I, I pretty much can see a demonstration like that and go, oh, that's a trick. But then there are other supernatural claims that just have no explanation. Now, speaking about predictions, let me tell you about some predictions that were made under impossible circumstances. There's no way they can be explained by trickery. Your Bible consists of two major divisions. The Old Testament, which was written hundreds of years before the coming of Christ, and then the New Testament, which is all about Christ. Right? In the Old Testament, there are dozens, some people would say hundreds, of specific predictions identifying who the Messiah would be. And they were all fulfilled by Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Specific predictions, such as in the prophet Micah, Micah 5.2, says that the Messiah must be born. Now, you would think it would say in Jerusalem because that's the big capital city. No, he must be born in Bethlehem. And remember when the wise men came, they went to Jerusalem. They thought that's where he might be born. And they asked, where is the the king of the Jews, to be born. And they looked in the scrolls and they said, oh, that's a no-brainer. He's south of here, Bethlehem. All right. So hundreds of years before Christ was born, everybody knew that the scriptures predicted he had to be born in Bethlehem, even though the parents lived 90 miles north in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. The first book of the Bible, book of Genesis, predicts, that the Messiah must be born of a particular man by the name of Abraham. He had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. He was going to be born not of Ishmael, but of Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. He had to be born of Jacob, not Esau. Uh, Jacob had 12 sons. He had to be born of Judah, not the other 11. Trace it all the way down. From the line of Judah, a bunch of kings were prophesied to come. King David was the second king of Israel. Through his entire lineage, the Messiah had to be born. You uh, take a look at Jesus of Nazareth and, look, and trace his lineage. It goes all the way back through that exact line. Now, here's a tough one to pull off. The Messiah would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 9. Or Isaiah 7. Isaiah 9 speaks of a child being born who will be called Mighty God. He will be man and he will be God. He will have a healing ministry. He will heal, in Isaiah 35, the blind, deaf, lame, and mute. In Daniel chapter 9, it lays out a timeline of when the Messiah will come, and it takes us right around to the year 30 A.D., 
All these predictions made hundreds of years before the coming of the Messiah. Now, the fact that these were prophesied and fulfilled points out three things, right? three important things. Number one, that the God of the Bible is the true God. In fact, God himself says this. We got this working here? Does it work? Can you advance it for me? No. <laughs> Queen of Hearts! <laughs> There we go. Isaiah 46, God says this, I am God, there is none like me. Well, what sets this God, the God of the Bible, apart from all the other gods? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. The thing that makes me the true God that no other gods can do is I tell you what's going to happen from ancient times and they will be fulfilled precisely. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So the, the fulfillment of prophecy, first of all, proves that the God of the Bible, not the God of Islam, not the Hindu billions of gods, but the God of the Bible is the true God. Right? Second thing fulfilled prophecy does is it shows that your Bible is inspired. It's not just a book written by men. Oh, God used men, but it was also God-breathed. It's supernatural. And then the third thing these prophecies prove is that Jesus truly is the Messiah. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to take a look at one particular chapter, Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah wrote about 700 years before the time of Christ. In this one chapter alone, I'm going to point out 12 prophecies that Isaiah made that are all fulfilled in Christ. And um, here's, here's how I want to do it. I want to take a look at the life of Christ first. Then we'll go back to Isaiah. Then we'll take a look at the life of Christ. And we'll go back and we'll go back and forth like that. All right. So let me begin with this. In um, John's Gospel... Some people would say the Gospel of John is built around Jesus performing seven miracles, or John calls them signs. The uh, first sign is he turns water into wine at a wedding. The second one is he heals a nobleman's son. The third one, he heals the lame man at the pool of Bethsaida. The fourth one, the feeding of the 5,000. The fifth one, he walks on water. The sixth one, he heals a blind man. And then the climax of the whole thing is when he heals his friend Lazarus, or raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. Remember, Lazarus died. He was buried, put in a tomb for four days. Jesus shows up, and uh, he goes, move that stone away. And the sisters say, no, by now he stinketh. That's what the King James says, right? And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes forth from the grave alive. Now, you would think after all of these miracles, John would say, therefore, all of Israel believed that the Messiah had shown up. No, here's what John says. John 12, 37. 
though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. The vast majority of people did not believe in Jesus. In fact, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, the religious leaders get together and they they make a decision. Here's what it says. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. We got to get rid of this guy. It's kind of funny. They also were going to put Lazarus to death, but what if he just kept coming back to life, you know? (laughs) I would say one of the characteristics of John's gospel is he wrote it so we would believe, but Jesus' ministry is characterized by unbelief. There was lots of unbelief. So let's go to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. It begins with, Who has believed what he has heard from us? In other words, I'm going to tell you some amazing things. Not a lot of people will believe. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord. That means God's about to do something amazing and he's rolling up his sleeves. And he sends his son into the world and hardly anybody believes. Now, if you think I'm stretching it, John himself says this. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? John says their unbelief is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53.1. Now let me point out something interesting. John says they did not believe, therefore, they could not believe. There's a progression. When you see the obvious hand of God working, when you hear his gospel again and again and again, and you don't believe, there's a point where God hands you over to the hardness of your heart, and you cannot believe. I pray nobody in this room has said no, no, no to the point where you have been judicially hardened against the truth. So the first thing Isaiah uh, says about the Messiah is his ministry will be characterized by unbelief. Second word, I'm going to highlight the word ordinary. The coming of the Messiah, he will be an ordinary person. Do you remember in John chapter 1, um, Andrew finds Jesus. He tells Peter, and the word starts to spread, and they tell their friend Nathaniel about Jesus. We found the Messiah. And he goes, well, where is he from? Nazareth. And what does, uh, what does Nathaniel say? Can anything good come from Nazareth? That's like saying, where is he from? Elburn. What? Alburn? Not New York? Not Los Angeles? Not, you know. um, Nazareth was a podunk, nothing town. And even one of his own followers kind of makes fun of the fact that he's from Nazareth. 
Later in his ministry, uh, people want to follow Jesus. And Jesus, loving people enough, he says, you know, it's not easy following me. Birds have nests, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He wasn't rich. He was homeless. That's not very impressive, is it? Then the week he goes to Jerusalem to die. Uh, First of all, he turns over the tables in the temple. That doesn't go over well with the religious leaders. And then he outsmarts them with every question they try to trap him with. And then finally, they get mad and they come to him and they say, by what authority do you do these things? In other words, who the world do you think you are? We're the sheriff in this town. You don't come from our schools. You're not one of us. You're a podunk nobody. You're so ordinary from Nazareth. Now, Isaiah says this. For he, this Messiah, grew up before him, God, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. What's the the picture there? Is he a lush, beautiful plant that everybody's attracted to? No? Picture a a dry, barren land, kind of like your lawns. And it's so hot and dry that a gnarly, dry root pops out of the ground. That's how he will be perceived. He had no form or majesty. He's not royal with the royal robes. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Now, that is not referring to his looks. Some people take that to mean, no, uh, he wasn't very good looking. No, that is not referring uh, to his appearance. That is referring to his ordinariness. Right? No royalty, just very plain. Let me keep going. Third word that Isaiah would use to sum up the coming of the Messiah, he would be despised. You know, Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him. And he says to them in John 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. Because I will go around pointing out people's sin and their need for a Savior, they will hate me. Now you are of the world, they, they love you because you're part of that system. That's how you can tell a true believer, by the way, from a false believer. Do they go through their entire life without ever getting in trouble with anybody? Right? Jesus says, they're going to hate me. Right? When he was crucified. First of all, they brought him before uh, Pilate, and then Pilate sent him to Herod, and Uh, Herod's men mocked him. Then he was scourged. And they didn't just punish him. But after he was bloodied and beaten, 
they put him in a, 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 a purple robe and put a crown of thorns on his head and bowed down before him, mocking him. They despised him. And then when he was crucified, it says, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Mocking a man in torture and agony. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him. So here's the, the leaders of Israel mocking him, saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we'll believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. He's getting what he deserves, in, in other words, if he desires him. For, I said, uh, for he said, I am the son of God. And then you would think of all the people that might have some sympathy for him. It would be the two thieves who are crucified in agony next to him. But it says, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. He was hated. He was despised. Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces. What does that mean? He was despised and we esteemed him not. They hid their faces. On the one hand... As he's hanging on the cross, they hate him, they despise him. On the other hand, he is so grotesque in his suffering that earlier in Isaiah it says this, Isaiah fifty-two fourteen. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He was so marred that you couldn't tell he was human. So in the hideousness of torture, people looked and they hid their faces. You know when the Passion of the Christ first came out, um, if you watched it in the theater, as Jesus is being lacerated with the, uh, the cat of nine tails and crucified and he's just a bloody mess. People turned their faces because they couldn't look upon it. And I have a sneaking suspicion that that movie didn't even come close to what he looked like as he was hanging on the cross because he, this says he was so marred beyond human semblance. So, he was despised. Now, fourth thing, he was cursed by God. Now, Isaiah says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet, yet we humans esteemed him or, or considered him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now, what this is saying is humans will look at him and they'll go, Oh, he must have done something really bad. He is under the curse of God. He's getting what he deserves. Remember, as they mocked him in Matthew 27, 43, they walked by and said, he trusts in God. Let, let God deliver him now. <laughs> he walked around thinking he was the son of God. Look at that. He's getting what he deserved. They considered him, they esteemed him under the wrath of God. Now... 
in one sense, they were completely wrong. He wasn't there because of who he was or what he did. In another sense, they're exactly right. He is under the wrath of God. He is being cursed by God because he voluntarily submitted to the cross in our place. Okay? He is cursed by God as our substitute. Right? As uh, John, 1 John 2, 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins. What's the propitiation? He is the one who absorbs the wrath of God in place of another. He was smitten by God and afflicted. Number five, he was brutalized. Let me put up five words here. Pierced. His hands and feet were pierced, and then a sword or a spear was thrust into his side, into his heart. He was pierced. He was crushed. The weight of the cross as he was carrying it fell upon him, and the cross crushed him, and he was crushed by the wrath of God upon the cross. He was chastised. I looked up the word chastised. It means corporal punishment or a beating. He was striped. The cat of nine tails would dig into your flesh and lacerate with deep cuts like razor blades your flesh. He was striped with the whips. And in essence, he was slaughtered. Slaughtered means the violent, brutal killing of a person. Now, Isaiah says this. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Now, let me pause here. The ESV uses the word wounded, which is a general word. It's a Hebrew word, um, and they translate it wounded. Other translations translate it pierced. The NIV, the New American Standard, translate it pierced. Now, it's a general word that can mean generally wounded, or it, in some cases, can mean pierced. Now, regardless of how you translate that word, there are other Old Testament prophecies where the word pierced is clearly used. For example, in Zechariah 12, this is a prophecy of a day that is still to come. When the Jews will look back upon Jesus and repent. And believe in him. When will that happen? Look at this. And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Are you watching the news these days? Do you see what Iran's up to? Do you see what Egypt is up to? Do you see what all the the Muslim countries are up to? Uh, They want to destroy Israel and get Jerusalem back. So uh, on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Born. They will look upon the one whom they have pierced and repent. All right, so the word pierced is used uh, in, in reference to Jesus. 
All right. So back to Isaiah 53, 5. But he was wounded or pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Verse 7, he was opposed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Verse 8 uses the word oppression, stricken. Verse 10, crush again. Isaiah prophesies that the Messiah will be brutalized. Now, in this same section, I want you to see something else. I want you to see the language of substitution. Okay? If, if you were to ask me to use one word to, to uh, summarize the gospel, I would pick the word substitution. It's all about God becoming man and stepping into our place as our substitute to absorb the wrath of God in our place. Um, here in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He is our substitute, right? Just notice in Isaiah the language of substitution. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed, right? Verse uh, 6, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. All right? Now, um, let me say this. You go, how is it that Jewish people can read Isaiah 53 and come to any conclusion other than that must be referring to Jesus? All right? Doesn't that... Doesn't that bother you that Isaiah 53 is screaming that this is Jesus? Well, here's how they interpret it. And actually, there's a big section within Isaiah called the Servant's Song. And sometimes um, Isaiah is referring to the people of Israel as God's servant. Other times, uh, it's referring to a Messiah, an individual who is coming. Now, they would just say, well, Israel has suffered a lot. They've been brutalized. So this is simply about the sufferings of the people of Israel. But here's the problem with that. How can you be your own substitute? How can a sinful people be brutalized and pay for the price of their own sins. Right? This isn't Israel. This is somebody being brutalized in the place of them for the transgression of my people. This is the Messiah. Okay? Let me keep going. As he is being brutalized, he's silent. If you remember, he stood trial before the Sanhedrin, before Herod, and before Pilate. And they're accusing him, and he refuses to defend himself. In fact, at one point, Pilate uh, says, Don't you realize I have the authority to crucify you? Say something! And he says, you know, Pilate, you, you wouldn't have any authority unless it was given to you. But he doesn't defend himself. It's almost as if he wants to go to the cross. 
And Isaiah says this, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was silent. Let's talk about his grave. Remember, he was crucified between two thieves. And the plan would be this. Those who die on the crosses are thrown in a common grave. Just throw them in a common grave. But, as the body is being brought down, a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who's a rich man, who has a nice grave in, the, uh, in rock with a, with a stone, he says, I'll put him in my tomb. So you've got the intention of burying him amongst the common, yet a rich man says, I'll step in. Here's what Isaiah 9 says, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. You've even got the plural, the wicked, and the singular, a rich man. Jesus was sinless. Hebrews 4.15 speaks of Jesus, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He never sinned. This servant... It says in Isaiah 9, it says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Never did he lie. This is a sinless substitute. Right? Again, this can't be Israel. How can a sinful people be the sinless sin substitute for themselves. They aren't sinless. Okay. Number 10. Resurrection. Christianity is all about Jesus dying in our place on the cross, being put in a tomb, and then him rising from the grave. His resurrection validates that he is who he claimed to be. His resurrection is also predicted in Isaiah. First of all, uh, the, the servant in Isaiah dies. It says, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. So this guy's going to die, whoever it is. And then in verse 10, it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. And the offering, that's death. That's putting him to death. But then it changes and it says, he shall see his offspring. Oh, did he have kids? No, that's his spiritual offspring, his spiritual children. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. He's going to live on the other side of this death. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Another word, justification. Romans 4 5 says this. Here's a summary of the gospel. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. What does this mean? If you think you can get into heaven by being good enough, by doing good works, you're in for quite a surprise on Judgment Day. You can never be good enough. So, how, what chance do we have? Well, Jesus, our substitute, not only died 
a death on our behalf, but he lived a perfect life on our behalf. And when we stop trusting in ourselves, but we believe in him, he justifies us. He declares us righteous by faith in him, not by our own good works. Look at what Isaiah says. My servant, he will make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Counted as righteous, justified. And then number 12, intercession. That's a word that means he will pray. Remember as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he looks down upon those who've just crucified him, and he says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He prays for their forgiveness, he intercedes for them. And do you know right now, Jesus is praying for you? Romans eight thirty four. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He intercedes for us. He prays for us. He talks to God on our behalf. Isaiah ends with this. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. All this written in one chapter, 700 years before the birth of Christ. God, the true God, declares the end from the beginning. He gives us scripture that is clearly inspired. And he identifies that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. Now, some of you have heard this statistic before. Let's let's go over it again. Um, Mathematician Peter Stoner calculated the probability of one person fulfilling not all the messianic predictions of the Bible, and again, some would say there's, there's like 300 of them, um, not fulfilling all of the messianic predictions of, of the Bible, but just eight messianic predictions. He found that the probability would be 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Now, I got a little education on, on powers here, okay? Um, now, it's true that if it's 10 to the 17th power, there will be 17 zeros. But I put a, uh, a, a number up there during the first message. It was like 10 billion to the 124th power. That's not 10 billion with 124 more zeros. That's 10 billion times 10 billion times 10 billion times 10 billion 124. I mean, it's just, it's a room full of zeros. And that was the odds of all the variables lining up in the universe to bring about what we have now. This is the odds that somebody in history could fulfill eight of the messianic prophecies, one in 10 to the 17th power. The likelihood of this occurring is comparable to covering Texas with that many silver dollars. And that would be, somebody actually figured this out, fill the whole state of Texas with silver dollars, it would be two feet high. Not that they they actually did it. (laughs) It's amazing what you can do with math. You don't actually have to do it, right? Um, So two feet high in in, uh, silver dollars, marking, and then marking only one of them and stirring the mass of dollars and then having a blindfolded man randomly pick up the marked silver dollar. This is the likelihood of Jesus of Nazareth randomly fulfilling only eight of the messianic predictions of the Hebrew Bible. I think we have the right guy. I think our God knows the end from the beginning. 
I think his word is inspired. You can have confidence that Jesus is Lord. That the, the word of God can be trusted. That God's in perfect control. Right? Let's pray. Worship team, come on up. Lord, what an amazing, amazing truth. We can only step back in awe and wonder and glory. And, um, and Lord, we certainly don't want to forget the pain and the anguish involved in bringing about the fulfillment of these prophecies. Thank you, Jesus, for willingly going to the cross on our behalf, for being pierced, for being brutalized. Um, Thank you for taking our sin upon you and receiving the wrath of God. And then, Lord, thank you for confirming that this is true, not just because it's written down, but because it's written down in such a way that it has no explanation. We worship you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.